Welcome to the Crosslands Church Podcast, our mission to help you experience the life with God you've been missing. And now, a message for you. Sort of betrays my age that it, it really doesn't seem that long ago, but it also blows my mind to think of how many people that are part of our church were born after that event. And to them, it's sort of distant history. But I remember when the event happened, and it was, it was sort of shattering and... and um, it sort of rocked the world of a whole bunch of people in North America because it was so unexpected. And, and after the event, there were invitations for pastors to fly to New York City to just be present on the street and to be able to pray with people who, who, whose lives had been rocked. And they just wanted to reach out to God and maybe didn't know how. And there was one qualification. So they, they wanted, if you were able to fly your own way to New York, they would put you up in a hostel or something and provide you food, but they wanted you to wear a collar, a traditional collar, so that people would recognize you as a pastor, as somebody who was authorized or, or safe to pray with. And that, that was the sign of it. And it, it kind of, when I think about it, I think so, so that's what makes you look like a pastor. And I think a lot of people would think, well, you, that's what a priest wears. And in my career as a, as a pastor at Crossland's Church, in our tradition, we don't use the term priest. We use the term pastor, which means someone who cares for people. Someone who is, uh, the, the word comes from the, the occupation of shepherding. And it's funny, I had a, a youth member years ago that, that was not brought up in the church. And she said to me one time, you are my pasture. And she pronounced it like pasture. But I thought, like, you're so close to the truth because there's that connection to caring for people that it isn't just a title that some people consider pastors just a title. That's actually where the word comes from. And then in some other traditions, we don't traditionally in our tradition use the word minister. That means servant, somebody who serves people. And then there's, there's the word priest. And I get called that sometimes. And I remember when my kids were, were in school, they, they, would, they would be asked, you know, what does your dad do for a living? Well, he, he leads a church. Oh, so he's a priest. Well, not really. Like, I don't know how to answer that. But, but what is that? Have you ever had a misconception of your job? You know, somebody asks what you do, and, and all of a sudden they go, okay, I know you do. You, you rip people off, or you make a lot of money, or this is what you do all day. Um, for me, sometimes that's been the priest imagery. And, and, and what is that? What, what is, even is a priest? For a lot of people in our culture, it conjures the image of a person in black wearing a collar. And for a lot of people sometimes a negative image. Don't know what that person does. They listen to confessions or, or maybe they're scammers or worse. I think since 2001, the, the predominant images of, of somebody who works in a church has actually gone down, not up, as we become increasingly cynical in our culture towards institutionalized religion. And so when somebody says you're a priest, all of a sudden that's not a positive, positive image in their mind. But the, the idea of a priest actually comes from Jewish culture. The practice of Judaism. The, the same thing that Jesus and his disciples practiced and, and, and inherited from hundreds and hundreds of years of, of scripture and tradition and God speaking interacting with his people. And the priest was a person who performed the duties in the temple on behalf of the people. And there was one person who was the top of all the priests and he was known as the high priest. And the high priest was a specific individual who would represent the whole nation to God. Particularly at that one day of the year where there was the, the Feast of Atonement. 
uh, atonement where that high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and represent the people to God and, and, and take care of their wrongdoing and, and their sins. And then they would come back out and they would represent God to the people. This is what God says. This is what God expects of us. And he was a go-between between God and his people. That's what a priest does. That's what a priest did. As a quick review, we, we are in the fourth message of our Hebrew series, and the first message was just an introduction. The second one was focused on Jesus being better than angels, not just an arbitrary sort of status thing, but the, the angels were understood to be the mediators of that first covenant, the first agreement with God. And the, 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 the claim of Hebrews is that Jesus is better because not only is he better, but the second agreement he brings to us is better. And the second uh, the third message was about the second claim that Jesus is better than Moses, who was God's servant. He was God's faithful servant, but Jesus is God's faithful son. Where Moses was unable to bring the people into their place of rest, Jesus is. And then the third claim is what we're dealing with today. It's, it's the last in a four-part series, but we're going to be coming back to Hebrews in a few weeks to deal with the middle part of the book. And today, the claim is that Jesus is better than the high priest. Uh, if you have a text message comment or question, if you have a comment or question relevant to the message, you can put it on the YouTube chat or text it to me to my, to my uh, phone number if you have it, and we'll deal with them at the end if we have time. Uh, but this is what we're talking about today. Jesus as the ultimate high priest. It was almost 100 years before Jesus was born when uh, the, the Jewish people had miraculously thrown off the oppressive reign of the Greek Empire. We're talking Greek Empire. You got to go back to Alexander the Great, who conquered everywhere he went. And after he died, he left everywhere he went. There was there was the manifestations of this Greek culture and Greek Empire, and and Israel was kind of caught in the middle of that. And it uh, it was getting progressively worse as as their culture was being compromised, as their religion was being suppressed, and there was a, a, a massive revolt and a massive rebellion, and they overthrew the rule of the Greeks, and they established their own rule. They established their own kings, and they established their own priests. And here's where things started to go wrong. Because the family that started the revolt came from a certain tribe, the tribe of Levi, and that's where the priests came from. They were a priestly family, and they were not supposed to be kings. Kings were supposed to come from the tribe of Judah. But because they were the ones that won the battle, they, they established their own dynasty, it's known as the Hasmonean dynasty. And so they served as kings, and they also served as priests. And yet, although priests came from the tribe of Levi, the high priest was a hereditary line that they were not part of. And so things started to go bad almost right away. The very second king in that dynasty, his name was Alexander Janius. And um, in all of the, the conflict and, and the politics, uh, he, he, he ran afoul of a, a, a new group that was trying to serve God faithfully that you might be familiar with if you read the New Testament, but they're nowhere in the Old Testament. That's a group called the Pharisees. And they would, they would have uh, differing practices how they expected worship to happen in the temple. And so here's this king, Alexander Janius, who officiated as the high priest, although he wasn't supposed to. He was kind of illegitimate. And there was this one ceremony in the middle of the, the Feast of Booths. You see it referenced in, in the, 
Gospel of John, when, when Jesus claims to be the water of life, and, and scholars would assume he's doing that during what's called the water libation ceremony, where they would pour out water symbolically as an offering to God. And so the Pharisees expected the water to be poured out on the altar, and in defiance of them, Alexander Janius, the king and high priest, poured it out on his feet. And they were so incensed that there's a, it's actually quite a dramatic story, is when, when he was leaving the temple, they started pelting him with lemons. Why lemons? I don't know. It must have been lemon season or something. But that's, you can look this up historically. And they, they're insulting him. They're insulting his ancestry and insulting his birth. And, um, and so he closed off the temple to them. The only people that were allowed near him were the priests. And nobody else was allowed to come into the temple, and, and probably for fear of the people. And that started a whole new Jewish civil war, a revolt, internally. And so by the time Jesus comes around, the common people had a huge cynicism towards the priesthood, particularly to the high priest. He's not of the right lineage. In fact, not only that, but the high priest was somebody who had to be approved of or was even appointed by Rome, who had become, in the meantime, their oppressors, their occupying force. They had been, de they had been defeated, they had been overrun by Rome now. And, and it's like, you know, we have a lot of political strife right now with all the conflict that's happening. It's very, very difficult for our politicians to get things right, especially because everybody has so many different, differing opinions. And, and so there are people that might say something, well, I didn't vote for that guy. Okay, but in a democracy, you have a vote. What if you lived in a, under a government where you expected that the rulers were answerable to God and appointed by God, but instead of being appointed by God, they were appointed by pagans who were your enemy? It was like a puppet government. And so in Jesus' day, the high priest was considered a, somebody in a position that was completely corrupted. Wrong lineage, wrong appointment, probably wrong motives. And this is the center of their worship. It was so bad that, uh, you know, the, the, the approved temple was in Jerusalem. But there was a man who was descended from the right high priest. And he actually left the country and took a whole bunch of people with him. And he set up a second temple in Egypt. A lot of people don't know this. They called it the land of Onias because the, the priest's name was Onias. And he was descended from the high priest at the time of King David. And so for about 100 years, there was a second temple going on where sacrifices were being made and, 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 and proper worship was happening. And it was kind of like you had the choice. Do you worship at the right temple with the wrong priest? Or do you worship at the wrong temple with the right priest? So you could imagine what kind of confusion is happening. So we're talking about the book of Hebrews. And, and I, I've, I've sort of painted the picture of a, of a Christian synagogue somewhere in the Roman Empire. Probably not in Jerusalem. And they're hearing this, this Sunday morning or Saturday morning sermon, which is the book of Hebrews, and it's talking about Jesus being superior to the first covenant, the first agreement with God. There's a second one, and this one is superior. It's been implemented by Jesus. One reason uh, that, that scholars are pretty sure it doesn't happen in Jerusalem is because the, the, the preacher, the author, never really uses the word temple. He uses tabernacle, which was the, the tent that preceded the temple. Every time he talks about the way worship is supposed to happen. And, and the dating of the book, which I said in the first message is really hard to pinpoint, it's probably before 
the destruction of the temple, which happened in 70 AD. Otherwise, they would have referenced that when it came to the second covenant, the second agreement being superior to the first one. And they never, they never referenced that. But the first covenant had a high priest. The second covenant had a better one. That's the claim being made in chapter 5. Hebrews 5 verse 1 says this, Every high priest is a man chosen to represent other people in their dealings with God. He presents their gifts to God and he offers sacrifices for their sins. There were two basic characteristics that are pointed out in Hebrews that was expected uh, for a high priest to fill. I'm going to deal with the verses slightly out of order um, so that the framework is a little bit more understandable. But the first requirement was that the high priest was chosen by God. The very first high priest ever under that first agreement was Aaron, the brother of Moses. Hebrews 5 verse 4 says this, No one can become a high priest simply because he wants such an honor. He must be called by God for this work, just as Aaron was. He must be authorized. He had to be recognized. God has chosen this person. It's just not something you can choose to do. In that little sentence, there was an implicit criticism against the worship of their time. Because everybody knew that the high priest that was serving was not a descendant of Aaron. He wasn't from the priestly family. Which is a problem. In comparison, Jesus, we see this in Hebrews 5, verse 5 and 6, says, it says this, That is why Christ did not honor himself by assuming he could become high priest. No, he was chosen by God, who said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And in another passage, God said to him, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He's like Aaron. He's a high priest chosen by God, but better. Authorized. Now, there's a very confusing little bit in there. He's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. You might be thinking, what the heck is that? I would love to really dig into that today, but we're not going to, because Hebrews goes into more detail a little bit later on. So in the next group of messages in a few weeks, we'll, we'll sort of pick that apart and talk about what that means. So like, sort of hold on to your expectations there, and, and we will deal with that later on. So the, the first thing, the first requirement for a high priest, for a person who is to be the representative, to represent people to God, is that he's chosen by God to do so. The second thing was that a high priest had to be able to sympathize. So in terms of Aaron, Hebrews 5, verse 2 to 3 says this, he is able to deal gently with ignorant and wayward people because he himself is subject to the same weaknesses. That is why he must offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as theirs. The, the word deal gently there is a, is a, it's, it's a single Greek word translated, and it's, it's a very specific word that um, it, it doesn't mean let people get away with stuff, but it also doesn't mean being excessively hard on people. It's sort of like the perfect line in the middle. And what we want in today's culture is, is we tend to want our wrongdoing uh, to be dismissed or ignored or covered over. But to deal gently isn't to ignore. It means you're dealing with it. You're just not doing, dealing with it in, 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 a, in a, an oppressive way. Um, I, I saw something online just this past week that some kid had, had run into a guy's car and dented it pretty badly with his bike, sorry. He 
He bumped into it with his bike. And I mean, the kid had no money to pay for it. He's obviously not insured when you're a bike rider. And so the owner of the car, he's riding this like crappy beat up old bike, just, just messed up, uh, like really, really cheap, secondhand, whatever. And so the owner of the car took the bike as payment for the dent. And it was overwhelming to the kid because there was no way the cost of repairing the car would be covered by the value of the bike. And so there was a cost it was dealt with, but the owner of the car was absorbing the cost by saying, you give me this and your, your, slate, your, your slate is clean, it's covered. That's sort of like, that's moderation in, in an egregious circumstance. So when, when your actions have been so bad, but you're dealt with gently. It's dealt with, but it's dealt with gently. You have to deal with the situation. And the high priest has to, he's subject to the same weaknesses. He, here's where things get messy. So we have, we have Aaron, who's a high priest. He's supposed to be the representative of the people. One of the first things he does, when Moses is up on the mountain getting the law from God, and the people get upset because he seems like he's been gone so long, I don't think he's ever coming back. What are we going to do about this? Moses, or Aaron, the person who's supposed to represent God to the people and represent the people to God, builds a golden calf and says, here, this is your God. This is what we're going to worship. We talk about human weakness. He actually promotes idolatry. Why? Um, When Moses is gone for a long time, and we're not sure he's coming back, we want to take control and implement our own solutions. When, when we're in a pandemic, and we have no idea how long it's going to last, and it feels like God isn't doing anything. Oh, he, he's still working, but I don't see it. And so our tendency is to want to take matters into our own hands outside of God's intention. We see it all the time in Scripture. This is, this, is, this, is a, this is a human tendency. You know, God promises to Abraham, and he says, it's not happening, so I'm going to take matters into my own hands and, and get it on with Hagar so I can produce an heir of my own. We see it happen with Saul. Saul's a king, and uh, God's not coming through, or the prophet's not coming through, so I'm going to take matters into my own hands and, and start the sacrifices and, and, and try to defeat the enemy that way. And we see it in the golden calf. See, a golden calf is something that is, it's a statue. It's static. It's limited in space. We can control that. We can't control the true God. But too often we're happy to replace him with something that we can control. Something that we make. Something that maybe is supposed to represent God. But it doesn't. Because it's a product of our own hands. It's a product of our own imagination. When you've been waiting too long, in what ways do we want to take things back from God and do it our own way? Replace him with something that is of our own design, is of our own control. And so no wonder the high priest has to offer sacrifice for his own sins. The word weakness there, it, it, it implies weakness of the flesh. And I, and I think it's, I'm not sure whether the author of Hebrews is going as far as when Paul would use a word like that, it would mean our old sinful nature. But it certainly seems like it. The tendency to default to our basic human weakness. 
And so he has to constantly offer sacrifices on his own behalf, not just the people. But Jesus, Hebrews 5, 8, and 9 says this, even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. He learned obedience from the things he suffered. That's a really challenging, difficult concept. In this way, God qualified him as a perfect high priest, and he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obeyed him. The things he suffered, he experienced weakness in the flesh without losing faith, without becoming unfaithful. So he sympathizes. We've talked to the past couple of weeks, and I don't know if you've caught this, but he went all the way from the top, all the way to the bottom, to experience the worst of what humanity can experience. And even through that, maintaining faithfulness. And so he understands, he sympathizes. He's like Aaron, but better. He's like that high priest, fully human, but also fully God, qualified, only Jesus. Now, what do we do with this? And, and I kind of struggled with this. You know, you're, you're pulling all this stuff out. This is all really cool. It's amazing to hear this about Jesus, but how does it matter to me in the 21st century? How does it impact my life on, on Monday morning when I'm going to work or working from home? How does it impact my life when my kids are struggling to do school on Zoom? When life is just difficult and I don't know how long it's going to last. It, it can be easy to succumb to cynicism, especially when we're part of a universal church we're part of God's family on earth, and so many parts of that family get it wrong. Like the, 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 the temple worship in, under the first covenant where you say, I, they're not doing it right. That's the wrong priest. They're doing the wrong things. And we see people doing the wrong things, and sometimes we see the church doing the wrong things, and it's easy to become cynical. The church is doing it wrong. Maybe you've had that in your personal experience. Maybe you've gone to a church, and you've been treated abom abominably by the church that's supposed to be treating you the way Jesus would, and you go, there's something wrong there. Do I just become cynical about that? When you experience a church and you get the sense that, oh sure, they're providing services and sermons and, and, and youth ministry and kids ministry, but you really get the sense they just want your money. And I know there have been churches like that. It isn't about the service, the ministry, it's about increasing the bank account and the salary of the pastors. Or maybe just the one pastor. Or when you see dishonesty, a lack of transparency, or even moral failures on the part of pastors, it's really cynical to put it all away and go, you know what, I don't want anything to do with that. Because it's wrong, it's distorted. What we strive to do, and certainly we do at Crossland's Church, is to lean towards Jesus as our mediator between us and God. Not me. Not the pastor, but Jesus. So my job is to lead all of us to point to Jesus himself as our mediator. We don't go to a human being other than Jesus. It's all about Jesus. He's our mediator. He's our representative to God. He's our ultimate high priest. That's who he is. And it's so easy to replace that with other things. Our job at Crossland's Church, for all of us, is to continually point ourselves towards him and to point other people towards him. The danger is to miss that message because of the mess that we see. We get cynical. The other danger 
is, is to let the forms of worship replace him. The things we can control. Well, I can control my church attendance. I can control my giving. Um, I can control my participation in the ministry of the church. And I'm just going to keep it small. I'm just going to keep it what I can manage. And then you, you find yourself going through the motions. You find yourself drying out. You find yourself losing steam. Because you're just going through the motions. Just doing the things when what we need to do is put faith in Christ, trust in him at the center of our worship, as the aim of our worship, not the forms of worship themselves. Don't pass up on Christ because of the problems in other people but make him the center of your attention. I want to give you an opportunity, if you've never done that before, to become a follower follower of Jesus. I'll I'll see if we have any text messages. We don't. Perfect. Okay, so um, I always wonder about that. Does it mean that people are fully engaged or disengaged? I don't know, but I'll probably get text messages now saying, no, we're engaged. Okay. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to challenge you to put Jesus at at the center. There's so many ways we try to approach God. So many ways we try to approach the highest ideal who is a person. We try to live up to education standards or or work standards or ambition standards or or use things like meditation or or, uh, yoga or uh, counseling to make us better. But none of those things actually get us to God. Some of those things are valid, legitimate. But none of them get you to God. Only Jesus gets you to God. Only he is that high priest who represents us to God and represents God to us perfectly. And so my challenge to you is to put your trust in him. And if you've never done that before, here's how you do it. It's as simple as ABC. A, acknowledge or admit. I need to connect with God in a way that I never have before because none of the other stuff is working. Admit that. Admit that you have wrongdoing in your life, not just, not just little acts, but intentions and attitudes and aims. They're off. They're wrong. And to some extent, you're aware of that. To some other extent, you're not. But you know that you have aims that are off. And God needs to be your highest aim. B is, is believe, trust, that Jesus is that High priest is that go-between that is trustworthy, that is faithful, that is capable, that is approved by God and is able to sympathize with our weakness and get us where we need to be. And then C is commit your life to him. Commit, that means you get off the path you were on and step onto Jesus' path. And if this is a, a decision you've never made before and you want to make this today for the first time, I want to lead you in a prayer. I want you to... to Take these words that I say and make them your own words, whether you repeat them loud after, out loud after me or even just after every sentence say, yes, that's what I'm saying. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Pray something like this. Father in heaven, I admit that I am not connecting with you apart from Jesus. I admit that my aims and attitudes have been wrong and I'm tr- choosing to trust today in Jesus as my high priest, as my representative to you. And I'm choosing to commit my life fully to you today. Amen. And if this is something you're doing today for the very first time, I want you you to connect with us. We have a link on crosslands.live. 
uh, you click the follow Jesus button, give us your contact info, because this is a, a whole new spiritual journey, a whole new life. And we have all kinds of next steps for you to pursue with that, to help you to connect with Jesus, to make him the source of your life. And so crossings.life, follow Jesus. We want to help you with this. The whole book of Hebrews celebrates this this new agreement that Jesus has made with us. And right now, we're going to move into communion. So this is the time to grab a cracker, a piece of bread and, and juice and, and, and do this with us. But this is, this communion celebration, this, this mini meal is, is a commemoration of that second agreement. It's a renewal of it. As we do this, we are affirming once again, yes, we are in with God's agreement. Yes, we are trusting Jesus with all of our lives and being. It's, it's all three of it. It's a memorial. It's a, it's a remembrance of what Jesus did on our behalf. He went to his death to conquer death for our sake so we could know life. It's that memorial. It's a participation in his path. It's us saying we're going to walk with Jesus in death to ourselves so we can live out that resurrection life. And it's a proclamation. It's the announcement that Jesus is the only way to God, that Jesus is God's chosen, his Messiah. That's the word, what the word Messiah means. God's specially chosen who went through death to resurrection on the other side. He authorized this celebration. He said, I want you to do this. And so we do it because he said so. And he meets us in the meal. As we do this in, in all kinds of mysterious ways, Jesus engages with us by his spirit. And so grab your cracker and your juice, these physical symbols that point to Jesus. This is an expression of faith, not just an empty ritual that we do that replaces our faith. It's an expression of our trust in him. And so 1 Corinthians 11, 23, 26 says this, for I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat our bread today in remembrance of Jesus who gave his body for us. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed by my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. Let's drink together. passage goes on to say, for every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. And so we celebrate today announcing his death, but anticipating his future return. Let's close in prayer today. Before we do, I just want to say, don't let cynicism towards any religious systems impede your connection to Christ. And don't let the forms of faith replace Christ at the center of your aim and the center of your worship. Father, I thank you for Jesus. 
that you appointed him as our representative, our perfect representative, our high priest. And because he has known human weaknesses, he sympathizes with us and he deals appropriately with our imperfection, with our wrongdoing. He does it in sympathy and in love. And so, Father, we're continuing in the midst of this seeming unending pandemic to continue to trust you, to put our faith in you, to put our confidence in you. Continue to meet with us as we pursue you. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Crosslands Church Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or the Google Play Store so that it comes straight to your device. And to find out more about Crosslands Church, you can visit us at crosslands.ca. Join us next week for another message to help you experience the life with God you've been missing.